Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo. Season 2, Episode 2, The World Takes a Stand Against the Congo Free State. Last time, we left the Congo at the beginning of the 20th century. We saw a Congo existing within today's borders of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and for the first time, all of the peoples living in it had a single shared king ruling over their lands. But this king never trod the savannas, the jungles, or accepted the challenge to explore and see the volcanoes of the east up close. Not once did he hear the broad waters of the river Congo's flow across the central plateau, lapping against the trees and jungles on the banks. And he certainly never entertained the thought of summiting any of its mountain peaks in the ranges to the east. The raging torrents of the River Congo as it neared the Atlantic could be on the moon as far as he was concerned. He was interested in none of this. All the adventures of travel, or meeting new people. He sat, thousands of miles away, as a tyrant king, measuring the worth of its colony only through its income statement. His name was King Leopold II, also King of Belgium, but for the Congolese he was akin to a despot. Under his rule, and by his very name no less, callous King Leopold II squeezed both the people and the land for all that they had. Centuries-old trade routes and political hierarchies were swept aside in a few short years. Under exclusively European command, the state police, the force publique, exerted total power. Standing on the shoulders of centuries of globalised development, they wielded guns with firepower the peoples of Central Africa could not match. Those peoples living in their ancestors' ancient lands were unable to resist the increasing demands the colonial power structures placed upon them. They saw their way of life, freedom, and even their families being swept aside. Initially there was an element of trade as the villages were offered beads, textiles and other goods in exchange for rubber and food. But as greed and the realisation of power set in, the system of exchange evaporated. Provision of items, especially rubber, was forced on the villages under pain of death, torture or amputation. As time progressed and men were so downbeaten so as to stop caring, the same fate was bestowed upon the old, the women and the children of the villages. The men were forced to supply the taxation quotas. From this oppression, King Leopold II got rich. Filthy rich. A conservative estimate puts his income at $1 billion per year. With this, he constructed monuments, parks, a colonial museum, and a house in the south of France where he could live with his mistress. In the words of Edmund Burke, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. But as this situation became more visible, good people were called to action, driven by sheer moral outrage. As we have seen in previous episodes, the apparatus of Leopold's Congo did not appear overnight. At the start of the 1890s, after news of Stanley's expedition spread throughout the world, many parties were eager to visit the Congo for purely altruistic purposes. Continuing the legacy of hundreds of years, some wanted to ensure faith and Christianity were introduced to all. Missionaries of many Christian denominations found their calling amongst the peoples of the Congo. One such missionary was a man called William Shepherd. In 1890, some years before the Congo Free State, Shepherd arrived in the Congo as a missionary of the Southern Presbyterian Church, before the excesses of Leopold's cruelty was in full flow. 
Shepherd was no ordinary man. He had always wanted to live in Africa, and he was happy there. He had left behind the oppression of the southern United States, in which segregation and judgment were still very much part of the society, and in Africa he found himself. He was a man of incredible physical courage. When an anchor was stuck at the bottom of a river, he hauled himself to some 15 foot below to the bottom to push it away with his feet to release it. More than that, after shooting a hippo, he swam to noose the carcass, narrowly beating a crocodile who was looking to indulge. Initially, Shepard spent his time in the then capital city, Boma. Boma was situated near the Atlantic coast just before the River Cascades and as the highest navigable point for ocean-going vessels, it was rapidly developing. Many sadly run-down buildings of the time remain, and you can see these on the web. Connecting us to the 21st century, if you've ever seen the recent Tarzan film, spoiler alert, Boma is the city which is overrun by the animals at the very end of the country, unified to exact their revenge on the colonial evildoers. Writing this podcast, this has a certain resonance, I have to admit. Shepard's first task was to decide where to set up a mission with his erstwhile boss. His southern church dictated that he needed a white superior, even in Africa. He decided to travel down the Kasai River to the region of the same name, and he was going to reach a people that in 1890 had not had any contact with the outside world. These were the Kuba. Going back in time before the atrocities of the last episode, Shepard met this tribe in charge of their own destiny. Now alone, as his unfortunate former boss had succumbed to hemorrhagic fever, he found the Kuba a remarkable civilization. They were seen amongst Africa's greatest artists with masks, sculptures, textiles and tools. He was so enthused that Shepard learned the Kuba language and in 1892 was the first non-African to reach their capital, Afuka. It took him three months as he had to surreptitiously follow some traders, but on arriving and learning that he spoke Kuba, the Kuba king let him stay. Shepard immersed himself in the culture and loved every minute of it. In his own words, I grew very fond of the Bakuba. They were the finest looking race I had seen in all of Africa. They were dignified, graceful, courageous and honest, with an open smiling countenance and really hospitable. Some years later he was due annual leave and Shepard returned home to the United States. On the way back, he lectured in England and became a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. He collected the most impressive artefacts that he could find, and to much fanfare they were displayed in the Hampton University Museum in Virginia, where they are still on display today. He became, like other explorers of the time, a global celebrity. Importantly, he also had access to the US President, giving Presidents Glover Cleveland and later Theodore Roosevelt Cuba artefacts as presents. This would come to prominence later. Congolese art as a whole was to go on to inspire Picasso and other artists of the early 20th century, weaving its masks and sculptures into Impressionism and Surrealism. Another traveller in the Congo before Leopold's tyranny was a British purser, Roger Casement. Casement was in the Congo in 1883 and actually accompanied Stanley for a week on the Emin Pasha expedition, where he was described as a good Englishman. This was despite the fact that he was from Dublin and was a proud Irishman. Casement was in the Congo intermittently for a number of years, where he was often viewed as being too good or too kind to the natives. He would never make his money as a trader. His empathetic approach was in sharp contrast to the more forceful Belgian mercenaries, 
who were just beginning to increase the viciousness of their extortion. In 1887, casement documents a meeting with the force public officer, Van Kirkhoven, who boasted how he would stimulate the prowess of his troops in the face of the enemy. This was achieved by paying each of his soldiers five brass rods for every human head they brought him after an engagement. Casement was appalled. He was able to share this horror and other tales with a Polish writer who used this story and others for a book he was writing about his travels in the Congo. The book was The Heart of Darkness, and the author wrote under the name Joseph Comrade. The Heart of Darkness is one of literature's greatest diatribes about cruelty in Central Africa and, as you may know, was the influence for Francis Coppola's 1979 film Apocalypse Now. The tale resonates clearly through to today's times. Hollywood actor James McAvoy recently narrated this for a radio production and the plot was used as the basis for the video game Far Cry 2. Horror and depravity unfortunately remain an equally appalling fascination for many to this day. Shepard and Casement were joined in their rage as they returned separately a few years later to see the atrocities of Leopold's Congo Free State firsthand. They visited the lands that they had known in more prosperous times. But angry as they were, they needed a channel to expose the oppression to the world. These individuals were not to be the catalyst for the worldwide movement that unified the populations of much of Europe and America in anger against King Leopold. That role was to be played by a husband and wife who had never set foot in the Congo. They were Edmund and Mary Morrell, and they emerged as Leopold's greatest foes. Edmund Morrell was a clerk who worked for the shipping line Alder Dempster, the same company that had employed Casement as a purser. With an English mother and a French father who had died young, Morrell was poor, bilingual, but by necessity hard-working. He was based in Liverpool, England, but he travelled to the Belgian port of Antwerp regularly to oversee the freight being loaded and unloaded onto the ships passaging back and forth to and from the Congo Free State. Initially he was excited at the prospect. Writing journals for a business publication, he enthused at the commerce the Congo Free State created. But as he saw more, this was to change. With his keen eye for detail, Morrell first noticed the men. These were not the hardened sailors of the normal cargo ships. They seemed to fall into two camps. Either shaking, nervous and full of anxiety, which drinking was unable to cure. Others were cold, hard and brutalised showing little emotional engagement with the world. He could not work this out. Latterly, he chanced upon a meeting where it was discovered that within the cargo of a ship bound for the Congo, there was a large quantity of bullets and guns. This had been leaked to the press to the anger and alarm of the Belgian superiors. This puzzled him further, and he began to investigate the freight records. He found that supply of armaments to the Congo Free State was totally normal. He also analysed the balance of payments, or trade flows, between the two ends of the route. When he looked at the monetary value of the goods coming into Belgium, compared to those arriving in the Congo, there was an enormous disparity. The value of rubber being shipped to Belgium far exceeded the value of any goods going to the Congo. This, combined with the human cost he witnessed in the crew, could mean only one thing. Extraction by force. In his own words, These figures told their own story. Forced labour of a terrible and continuous kind could alone explain such unheard of profits. Forced labour in which the Congo government was the immediate beneficiary. 
forced labour directed by the closest associates of the king himself. I was giddy and appalled at the cumulative significance of my discoveries. It must be bad enough to stumble upon a murder. But I had stumbled upon a secret society of murderers with a king for a crony man. Astonished, he reported this back to his managers in Liverpool. Their response was to attempt bribery. If they could find the right amount of money, they supposed, they could persuade Morale to keep his concerns private. Morale surmised that they knew what was happening, although perhaps not down to the extent. At the age of 28, and with little money to support his family, Morale turned this down. He had the full support of his wife Mary, and they refused to sit idly by. The manifestation of their outrage was to publicise the events, to force pressure on the international community to put a stop to this cruelty. In 1903, he started the West African Mail. Initially, this was funded, somewhat incongruously, by the Liverpool Chamber of Commerce, on the board of which was represented by many Quakers. From its inauspicious beginnings, this weekly newspaper grew to such prominence to become Leopold's greatest concern. Although the king lavished money and praise on his propaganda campaign of philanthropy and development, the West African Mail consistently told a contrary story. The publication became the beacon of opposition to the Leopoldian regime. All who rallied against the oppression got behind it. Chief amongst these were the Protestant missionaries. For those who listened to the last podcast, we have already heard the words of the Swedish missionary Schlobom and the English missionary Reverend Scrivener. But it wasn't just Protestant missionaries who reported atrocities back to morale for publication. We have mentioned the memoirs of the Frenchman, Marshal Leon Berthier, and the Belgian Catholic missionary, Stanislas Lefranc, who were viewed as oddballs for their reactions to the horror. In addition to this were the Belgian employees who found themselves amidst the violence. Some of these were as voiceless as the Congolese. Young men paid to travel to the Congo in order to find a way out of poverty but being unable to come to terms with the behaviour that supported the profits, and having no other option to repay the debt, they became depressed, on occasion with the ultimate consequence of suicide. One of Morel's greatest sources was actually an officer in the force publique, Raymond de Grace, who was sent home after being wounded in action a number of times. He consistently sent Morel detailed information on the atrocities. He had seen firsthand the tacit acceptance of cannibalism amongst the troops, and he was firmly against the regime. The head of one of the large Congo companies also sent morale unedited dispatches from agents in the field, some of whom boasted at the depravity. It is clear that not every employee of Leopold II was willing to go to any lengths to generate profit. Leopold was incensed. Britain was the superpower of the day and they could threaten his hold over the region. Only two months after starting the paper, the Congo question was debated in the Houses of Parliament. The House was unanimous in its verdict. Congo natives should be treated with humanity, and the Congo should be open for free trade. But, unanimous as the verdict was, it was toothless. Leopold took comfort from the lack of real action. The satirical London-based magazine Punch caricatured Leopold sitting with Sultan Abdulhamid II of the Ottoman Empire, who was explaining to him that the West would do nothing, just had happened to him after the Hamidian massacres of the Armenians in 1895. The cartoon pictured Leopold reclining with a glass of wine, saying, 
silly fuss they're making about these so-called atrocities in my Congo property. To which the sultan replied, Only talk, my dear boy. They won't do anything. They never touched me. But they had not read the small print of the verdict. In addition to the lame edicts, Parliament also requested that the British consul write up a report on the matter as soon as possible. The consul was a man who was born to the task, and we have already met him. It was Roger Casement. He had been complaining to officials about Leopold's atrocities for decades, and now he had the official opportunity to document these and report straight back to Parliament. He was resolutely determined to catch the snake, as he put it. He chose to avoid official transport routes, as that would have put him at the behest of the colonial officials. He rented a small steamer from American missionaries and spent three and a half months in the interior of the country. We have seen what he saw. And as his rage grew, he seems to have given others in the country the jolt they needed, although far from home, to stand against it. Missionaries resigned from Leopold's payroll, and the Italian consul launched his own investigation. Leopold increasingly had nowhere left to hide. Casement took pleasure in riling the British system and sent reams of letter detailing his findings. They were prepared for bad news, but Casement held no punches. He told the tales of the last podcast and graphically detailed how men's genitalia were cut off and presented to colonial officials alongside their hands to prove that the bullets had been spent only on men. When he felt he had collected enough evidence, he returned to England to write up his report. Morale was eager to meet him. In 1904, Mary and Edmund met Casement and they quickly struck up a close friendship, united as they were under a common cause. Emboldened, the Morale set up the Congo Reform Society and in addition to continuing to publish the West African Mail, Morale embarked on a lecture tour. He spoke at least every two weeks for two years and at every meeting members of Parliament of all parties would sit in attendance. Thousands of people came to hear his impassioned speeches and his command of detail was enough to rebut any propaganda that Leopold's machine could muster against him. To the Protestant clergy, he would claim how Protestant missionaries were pushed aside as Catholicism was held in favour by Leopold as a more complicit partner. To businesses, he would decry how the Congo market was closed and there was no possibility of trade for them upon the River Congo or from the south to Katanga. This was in direct contravention to the stated aims of the Berlin Conference. And finally, to politicians he emphasised his wide readership and how those most supportive would find this of great assistance when it came to re-election. In addition to the testimonies of those who had witnessed the horror, Morale now had the photographs of two British Baptist missionaries, John and Alice Harris. These were based in Mbasankusa, in the northern Equator province, and Alice was a keen photographer. Her photos are still espoused today, as they make the horror transparent at only a cursory glance. The desperately forlorn expression of her father, looking at his daughter's disaggregated hands, is enough to break anyone's heart. But morale did not stop at Britain. In September 1904, he travelled to the US, where he was able to meet the president himself, no less than Theodore Roosevelt. He addressed the East Coast intellectual circuit and found great support. The celebrated and influential author Mark Twain took up the cause, writing King Leopold's soliloquy in 1905, and he continued to meet President Roosevelt to lobby for action. John and Alice Harris followed morale to the US and addressed 49 meetings. 
Adam Hothschild's excellent book on this episode, King Leopold's Ghost, details how in Chicago one lady, an ex-slave, offered to donate her life savings to the cause, although a modest sum was agreed upon. In America, as in Britain, there was fervour against Leopold that was unstoppable. The peoples of the superpower of the day, and the superpower of tomorrow, had Leopold in their sights. By 1906, Britain and America were ready to hold a conference on the future of the Congo. Leopold tried numerous manoeuvres to sway public opinion, but when one of his leading men in the Congo committed suicide, he knew his position was untenable. Greedily and cowardly, he stayed in his south of France residence, holding out for a deal, and he indicated that he would sell Congo to the highest bidder. Frustrated and shamed into action, the Belgian government finally acquiesced. In 1908, they took sovereignty of the people's land in the Congo by agreeing to pay Leopold's debts of 110 million francs. 45 million francs to finish Leopold's vanity projects in Belgium, and a further 50 million francs as a mark of gratitude for Leopold's sacrifices made for the Congo. At the final reckoning, Leopold had caused tremendous suffering, which had resulted in the estimated deaths of 10 million people in these lands, which he had been so desperate to acquire under the guise of philanthropy. He had made billions, including siphoning off additional funds, but he was looked on with shame by many Belgians, and his legacy today is that of one of the worst excesses of power, cruelty and avarice. In 2004, activists cut off the hand of a Congolese man in a statue in Ostend, erected by Leopold to Leopold's glory. They held it to ransom, pending an apology from the Belgian royal family and state. As of April 2020, it is still unreturned. Morale disbanded the Congo Reform Association in 1907, and publications of the West African Mail ceased. The crusade was ended, but a new one was coming. Morale had natural sympathies with Congo, as opposed to France or Belgium, and as tensions grew between the European powers, he campaigned against the likelihood of World War I. He saw Germany as Britain's natural ally rather than France, or especially Belgium, and even when hostilities had started, he was one of the founders of the Union of Democratic Control. This was the leading British pacifist organisation, with 650,000 members during the war. When the war was finished, he opposed the war guilt assigned to the Central Powers. He was vehemently against the punitive terms of the Treaty of Versailles, warning that it would lead to another war. This was incredibly prescient, as we all know with the gift of hindsight today, that the Treaty of Versailles greatly fuelled the rise of National Socialism between this and World War II. It may surprise some listeners to learn that Morel was a vocal critic of France's policy of using colonial troops to occupy the German Rhineland as part of reparations, highlighting the reported abuse of the occupied German population. In 1922, he went on to become a Member of Parliament, defeating a certain Winston Churchill in the 1922 election as a candidate for the Labour Party. After years of anti-establishment campaigns, his cause was now embedded in the Houses of Parliament. But his influence was to be short-lived. He died only two years later, at the age of 51, leaving five children. Roger Casement continued his struggles for minority voices and travelled to Peru to assess the exploitation of the Putumayo Indians. This was again for the exploitation of rubber, although this time under British rule. His work defending these peoples led him to a knighthood. Throughout his travels, however, he never forgot his Irish roots. 
exposed as he was to the horrific oppression of the Congolese and the Peruvian Indians, he became more fervent in his support for Irish independence. In an abrupt turn of direction in 1916, he was found lobbying Germany for military aid for the newly founded Irish Republican Army, or IRA, in the Dublin Easter Uprising. In the brutal environment of the First World War, his previous achievements were forgotten, and he was sentenced to hanging for treason. And here we must leave these two men, and Mary Morrell, as well as the despicable King Leopold. Next week we shall look at the relatively forgotten episode of the Congo, when it was operated as a colony before the First World War. It had a shaky start as the legacy of abuse was very much in people's conscience, so much so that some advocated military action against Belgium to take back the colony, which would have changed the course of history forever. It's going to be a new history for most, I think, and I'm looking forward to our first dive into state colonialism. Once again, the people of the Congo had to adopt to a new foreign regime. So until then, safe travels, and see you next time. 